Welcome to the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest. My name is Sam Clements, and this is the podcast that celebrates films of a 90 minute or less runtime. In each episode, a guest will select a film and join me to add to our ongoing fictional film festival. Today, we're joined by Dr. Charlotte Crofts, Associate Professor of Film at the University of the West of England in Bristol and Director of the Carrie Comes Home Film Festival, a whole festival dedicated to the great screen icon that is Cary Grant. Hello, Charlotte. Hello. Oh, yay, Cary Grant. I love, you know, whether it be books or films or podcasts or or, or film festivals uh, that are sort of dedicated to sort of a singular subject. And uh, I think the Carrie Comes Home Film Festival does that so well and, and also, you know, brings uh, together so many people who love this wonderful uh, actor who I think maybe a lot of people know like a handful of films by like people will know his name and they can probably name a couple of films maybe the hitchcock films he did later in his career but i mean you you know more than me but you know he's starred in so many movies he had such a long career yeah, he starred in over 70 movies and I'm not an, I'm not a complete aficionado, although I'm the director of the Carrie Comes Home Festival. I bring in lots of experts that know a lot more about Cary Grant than I do. And, um, you know, he starred in such a range of work. So, yes, the Hitchcocks and the thrillers and the romantic comedies and things like that. But there's a, such a range of work. And what we're doing is trying to kind of excavate some of the lesser known works, particularly as the festival's kind of ha- grown more kind of momentum. Uh, obviously, when we first started, we were just putting on the kind of crowd pleasers to get people in involved but now we can do a mixture so we we've got the festival this year in november um and i you know we've programmed some crowd pleasers so we've got charade and the bishop's wife which are really great and our snick and old lace but we're showing some pre-code films this is the early carrie grant before he's properly become carrie grant it's just really fascinating to see how his acting technique is developing and how his kind of star persona is starting to kind of come into to focus um, and then we're showing a couple of things um, where he's playing against type. He's playing Cockney, working class characters. And we we know and love Cary Grant as this kind of very smooth, debonair, um, very, very handsome figure. And in these films, Sylvia Scarlet and None But The Lonely Heart, he's playing, you know, really rough people with a very dodgy Cockney accent, because of course he wasn't a Cockney, he was from Bristol. Um, but it's a kind of a stage Cockney accent. And it's absolutely fascinating to see these performances and, and hold them up against the other ones. Yeah, what, what's your relationship with Cary Grant? And how did this film festival start? Uh, you've dedicated a lot of your working life, you know, to celebrating this incredible career. I am from Bristol. But I didn't really know anything about Cary Grant when I was growing up in Bristol. And I moved away and I moved back in 1999. And I still didn't really know anything about it. And the statue was erected. I didn't even know that had happened. But I got interested in him because I'm obsessed with cinema going and cinema history and cinema buildings. And um, I made an app about the lost cinemas of Castle Park, which was um, is now a park, but was the busiest shopping area in Bristol before the war. And there were five cinemas in the park. And I made this app and it ended up having like 17 cinemas in it because I couldn't stop. And one of the cinemas was the Clare Street Picture House on Clare Street. And that was a cinema that was mentioned in Cary Grant's autobiography. He remembers going there with his mother. It was a very posh cinema and they used to serve you dainties on a silver tray. And he said that's where he learned how to eat with a pastry fork. 
Um, he also remembers seeing Edison's early sound films. This is in 1914. Um, so this is the kinetophone. So it's not the 1920s sound that which came, you know, was adopted by cinemas. It's a kind of precursor to that. And he remembers seeing um, sound films with his mother. So it was a really posh cinema. And there was another local cinema called the Metropole, which was a flea pit and it smelled of raincoats and galoshes. And that he went to that one with his dad and that was his favourite. And then I also found out that We've got a lovely big theatre called the Bristol Hippodrome. And in the 1930s, at the height of cinema going, it converted to a cinema for about six years and it showed six of Cary Grant's films. And he has another connection with Hippodrome, which is he went there as a schoolboy to see the electricity because it had been wired for electricity. And he went with his school on a trip. And that's where he saw backstage and he kind of got a whiff of grease paint and he fell in love with the life of the, of the actor. So this young guy, he was Archibald Leach then. And obviously that kind of informed his trajectory to becoming Cary Grant. And then later, when he had become Cary Grant, his films beamed down from from the cinema screen in the Hippodrome. So I just thought, oh my God, wouldn't it be amazing to recreate that? So first festival happened in 2014. I've never run a festival before. I'm not, you know, I've maybe put on like a symposium or something like that. And I had the foolhardy idea of putting on an event in the Hippodrome, which is a huge 2,000-seater theatre and involves all sorts of complex things like hiring in a PA and a, and a screen um, because it isn't a cinema. It was a great success, but we didn't sell out 2,000 seats. It was a really dynamic event. We had a red carpet. We had live music. We had performances from a youth theatre recreating Archie's life story. It was just a really amazing event. And I remember crying on the red carpet with um, an American visitor who's been to all our subsequent festivals, but she can't come this year. Just because of the frisson of being in the venue where Archie started out, um, it's just really, really emotional and really, really powerful. And I'm fascinated by location and history and co-presence with things that happened in the past. And now I can't stop doing it. I'm completely obsessed with Cary Grant. And um, But I think it's from being a really passionate Bristolian and wanting... Uh, for me, he symbolises something very interesting about our city in that it's a city of sort of social inequality still now. Um, and he came from quite a working class background and had a very difficult childhood, which we could talk about later. But he managed to navigate that and he became Cary Grant. So for me, he's an inspiring figure of, of how the arts and culture can help stimulate somebody to explore their identity. I think what you're doing is is totally wonderful. And, and as someone who grew up in Bristol, Myself, it took leaving Bristol to learn that Cary Grant, you know, Archibald Leach was a proud Bristolian. I, I think it was only when I was doing a film studies degree in another city where that sort of bit of trivia came up. And there was no statue when I was growing up. There was no film festival, um, you know, and, and there was just no one. I don't know. They're, they're like there's no there should be a cinema called the Cary Grant Cinema or a theatre or a hall or like a road or something. But there's there's nothing. Lots of people might know that he's British, but a lot of people just think he's American because he's in mainly he's in American films. And I feel like we've made quite a lot of inroads to recognising that not only is he British, but he's Bristolian. And there's something specific about the cultural and geographical space that is Bristol that contributed to the, the journey that he took. So we're a big port city and everybody knows our association with slavery and, and all of that background, but we're a port city and he grew up with boats coming into the city centre which has since been covered over. But he used to fantasize about sailing away on the boats. He tried to get a job as a captain's boy, but he he couldn't, he didn't have his parents' permission. But he remembers wanting to sail away on the tides of his imagination to escape his really painful childhood. And, 
you know, and also those early experiences of going to the theatre um, and also his cinema going experiences. It's right. He writes about going to see all these kind of slapstick kids, um, kind of pratfall, you know, silent movies. And you can see that in his performances. And of course, he trained as an acrobat. So he's very agile and has a lot of physical grace, but he can also do pratfalls and tumbles and things like that. So I, I think Bristol had an important role to play. And although he left, he was very loyal to the city. He would come back. Um, I don't know if you know the story of his mum disappearing and all of that, but his when he was at the end of primary school, he came home from school one day and she wasn't there and she never came back. And he was led to believe that she died. And it was only after he'd emigrated to America spent 10 years on Broadway in New York as Archie Leach, and then finally went to Hollywood and became Cary Grant. It was only after that that um, his father said, oh, no, I had her committed to a mental hospital. And he found out she was still alive. So he had 20 years of having felt abandoned by his mother. That had a massive impact on his relationship with women. And, you know, it's just such a fascinating story. So he grew up without a mother in a city. He bunked off school to go to the theatre and to work backstage and to go to the cinema. And that informed, he learned, he taught himself. He was an autodidact. He taught himself how to do, how to be Cary Grant through watching other performers um, and through observing performances. He, he had this scouts diary and in it there's nothing to do with the scouts it's all listing things that he's been to see and performances he's been to and um when he's worked backstage and things like that and it's it's fascinating what was his relationship with bristol after he did make it big i, I know he sort of came back occasionally and there's photos of him sort of by you know bristol landmarks but um how regular were those visits and and as it, did he talk about bristol later in life he's very fond of bristol he came back um once or twice a year apart from in the the war years the second world war to, he used to come back for his birthday and christmas to see his mum his birthday's the 18th of january he bought all of his partners here so he was very fond of the city. He used to stay at the Marriott and also at the Avon Gorge Hotel. And there's really famous photos of him on the on the terrace overlooking the suspension bridge. And he had a deal with the Post, the Evening Post, the Bristol Post, that if he gave them an exclusive photo shoot, they would leave him alone and not pat him while he was here. So he was able to to just be in the city. You know, in addition to all of the fantastic work you do uh, around Cary Grant, you know, are you a big film viewer in your own right? And and if so, you know, does a film's runtime ever come into your decision making process? I don't watch films based on their runtime, but I, I've just recently saw The Bride of Frankenstein, which was at the former Bristol IMAX. Uh, it's one of the venues that we're using for our festival. And it's been brought back to life by a group of people, um, mainly based at 20th Century Fli Flicks called the Forbidden Worlds Festival. Um, and that was really short. And we've got so used to these really kind of flabby films that drag on and on. It was just so refreshing just to kind of have this kind of film that just got to the point and didn't labour its point too much. So I'm a fan of a, of a short film. How did you go about deciding which film we would talk about today and, and, and what film did you settle on? Well, I've got a spreadsheet of films, as you can imagine. So I looked at all the films that had a short running time and then I went for my favourite one and my favourite one was My Favourite Wife. And the reason that I've chosen it is I think it's a really fascinating film on a number of levels. One is because um, the iconic Cary Grant film where he's truly become Cary Grant is always talked about as The Awful Truth, which is directed by Leah McCary. And The Favourite Wife is kind of a quite obvious attempt to recreate the team that was in The Awful Truth. My Favourite Wife, um, McCary um, commissioned it the, the film before a script had even been written and uh, he secured Cary Grant and Irene Dunn, so, you know, and he was going to be directing it. 
Unfortunately, Neil McCary had a really severe car accident, which meant that he couldn't direct it. So he got another director, Garson Kenyon, to come in, but he is still all over the publicity. So it's a Neil McCary production. But basically, he was kind of more or less on his deathbed um, as the film went into production, and it really um, affected the the actual atmosphere on set. Um, eventually, he was able to join on set, and he did take control of it because um, when it was finished, it wasn't working so they had to reshoot a bit which we can talk about in a little while but so that's one of the reasons I've chosen it and another reason is it's just got these magical sequences with Randolph Scott being kind of inside Cary Grant's head and there's a lot of interesting controversy about their relationship they were bachelors who lived together um, and um, lots of people speculate about whether they were lovers and I just think this film is really interesting to look at in that context and then I just think it's a really charming film and I love Irene Dunn. I just think she's so beautiful and their chemistry is so amazing. And even though it's not The Awful Truth, which is the more successful film, some of that is still there and there's a lot to love in this film. The funniest and fastest honeymoon ever screened. Ellen Arden, Irene Dunn, has been shipwrecked for seven years, but returns to discover her husband Nick, Cary Grant, has had her declared dead and remarried. She wants her man back and makes him jealous over Stephen, Randolph Scott, a man with whom she was shipwrecked. After all these years, can true love still find its way? My Favourite Wife puts the wide-ranging comedian talents of Grant and Dunn to hilarious use. It starts in a court where he's trying to prove that his previous wife has died so he can marry his new wife, okay? So his wife has disappeared on a research trip. I think she was a photographer um, and she, her boat has sunk and she hasn't come back, so she's presumed dead. And so he's getting his marriage annulled, or not annulled, but he's kind of getting proof that he is no longer married so he can marry his new wife. And already, the beginning of the film, you already hate his new wife. She's just so irritating. She's doing her makeup and her mirror is flashing around and it's flashing in the eyes of the judge. And the judge is the brilliant character, is really comic. So you already you already hate his new wife immediately. Then they go on honeymoon and he's booking into the hotel. And as they're going in the lift to go up to the to their room, he sees his original wife. She's come back. And there's this wonderful moment where he does this lean as the lift doors are closing and he kind of goes, Woo! and he kind of does a double take and he sees her. And it's just one of the, the best bits in the film. And so comedy ensues where she makes herself known to him and he goes, oh, my God. And he's just married. I'm not, we're never quite sure why he married the new wife because she's not a very likable character. She's played brilliantly by Gail Patrick. So then she's upset with him because he's remarried. But then it emerges that she was on a desert island with this other guy who's played by Randolph Scott for seven years. And then she tries to trick him into thinking that the guy she was on an island with was a really old man that she meets when she's having buying some shoes and she gets this man to come in and pretend to be... They call themselves Adam and Eve when they're on the island. So she he pretends to be Adam. But then... Cary Grant's already found out that it's actually Randolph Scott, who's this strapping, bronzed, very athletic man that shows off his prowess in the swimming pool by 
jump diving into the pool and uh, pulling up on these ring bars and and he kind of goes oh my goodness that's who she's been on a desert island with yeah so there are all sorts of tensions and and for me i think there's something a bit shakespearean about it there's a little bit of shakespeare in there of kind of mistaken identity or um kind of being at cross purposes to each other um and a little bit kind of taming of the shrew vibe of kind of like you know, she he's finding her quite irritating because she's kind of he loves her and still he's still in love with his original wife, but he can't tell his new wife. And you know, it's just oh. so it's just very very funny. Whether you're familiar with Cary Grant's work or not, I guess it's good to know he's in he's in a lot of films like this around this time, and he's always like the man stuck in the middle. The posters are often him with two other usually female leads. He does that so well. I, I think he does that sort of like guy who will move heaven and earth to sort of get what he wants, but without sort of disrupting the equilibrium a bit too much. Like he's sort of doing, in this film, he's doing a lot of this for the first half anyway, uh, behind his new wife Bianca's back. A lot of comedy comes from them having to sort of keep this, you know, amazing reunion. Seven years, you thought your wife was dead and she's come back. Like sort of keeping it on the down low and and not sort of trying to arouse suspicion. Uh, and, and he's so good at, at doing that. And I think in this film... There's a really great scene towards the beginning where he has to phone Bianca on their honeymoon whilst he's actually in the hotel saying he's been called away uh, somewhere. And, and she sort of gets summoned saying you have a call uh, from your husband and she gets put into the sort of public phone box next to him. And uh, and that's just one. And there's so many scenes like that, you know, where they're, they're, they're sort of people are almost next to each other, but um, but sort of, you know, trying to downplay that link. No, it's brilliant. So funny. He he pretends he's in an aeroplane or something, and the, there's a fan in the fo- in the telephone booth, and he he puts the phone up to the the fan to make it sound like it's a propeller of the plane or something like that. And then she just comes out and sees him there, and it's like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> and she's a really good straight woman because she's so dislikable, but she does it so well. And you you're really gunning for them for the original pairing to get back together. I do think this film sort of should just be screened more widely anyway. I think for listeners who don't get to see this at the um, Carrie Comes Home Festival. It is on iPlayer at the moment as part of the RKO archive that BBC iPlayer have, have acquired. And so that makes it sort of readily available. But it's not sort of, I don't maybe it doesn't have like the cachet of The Awful Truth or some of Grant's other, other films in terms of being cited as something people need to see. What's really interesting is it was kind of remade a couple of times. So, and one of them was the unfinished Marilyn Monroe film, Something's Got to Give, which is an exact remake. So if you go online, you can find the footage from that. It is different. It's got Rock Hudson as the uh, Cary Grant figure, but Marilyn Monroe plays the original wife who comes back. And one of the scenes that's been recorded is the scene with the, the shoe seller who um, she gets to pretend to be Adam. And there's an amazing scene of her in the swimming pool. But yeah, so My Favourite Wife has been retold and it's a retelling of a Tennyson poem. So I love the way that stories kind of circulate and, you know, get retold and redone. It's a very simple situation, mister. Explain it to him, Nick. All right, I will. Now, I came up here with my wife. Uh, my bride, really. Now, my wife, and uh, not my bride, my, my wife, but why should I bore you with the details? I won't be bored. Listen. Now, it's as simple as A, B, C. Don't tell me you've got somebody in B. It isn't The Awful Truth, which is like, for me, The Awful Truth is the film where you can really see him starting to become Cary Grant. And in fact, 
the film that happened before that, which is Sylvia Scarlet, that we're showing at this year's festival, that is the film, I think, that is the precursor to him really becoming Cary Grant in The Awful Truth. The film itself, Sylvia Scarlet, bombed in the box office and it's when Catherine Hepburn was dubbed box office poison, but people commented on his performance. He made loads of films. The first um, films that he made were released in 32, and he was just this good-looking arm candy for these female stars, Marlene Dietrich, um, Mae West, and so on. And he was just a really good looking guy that was kind of the boyfriend or the lover. He didn't really come into his own as a character. In Sylvia Scarlet, he plays this really horrible, unlikable, cockney, vagabond, well, con artist, really. But his performance is, you know, you're starting to see the Cary Grant that then would emerge in films like The Awful Truth. And The Favourite Wife is trying to capitalise on that. Mm. And, and it's playing, he's become a star by then, um, rather than just being a matinee idol, which is a good-looking guy, he's become a star. Um, it's playing on the star power of him and Irene Dunn, and you know the chemistry that people will remember from the awful truth. It's playing with a very similar structure. It's a comedy of remarriage and ends in a cabin, but isn't quite as successful as the awful truth. It hasn't got Asta the dog in it. I think that's probably why. <laughs> but it's really, really worth seeing. And I do think. I mean, let's return to Randolph Scott. So they met on the set of Hot Saturday, which is one of the films in which he's pressed playing this kind of eye candy. They were roommates and they lived together for many years. And Randolph Scott came to the UK with him when he was courting Virginia Cheryl. Virginia Cheryl being the actress who plays the main female character in City Lights, which I think was one of your episodes, which I listened to and really enjoyed, the Chaplin film City Lights. Mm. So he had a very close relationship with Randall Scott and the studios did a photo shoot with them both where they are in their gym shorts on a beach without a shirt on, both very attractive men. Um, and they also had shots of them, of their bachelor pad, of them cooking together and eating together and playing the piano together, which are kind of staged almost in quite a romantic domestic thing. And the byline was like, these are the bachelors, you know, these eligible bachelors living together. And those images circulate on the internet now as evidence that they had um, a homosexual relationship. Um, and I'm I'm not interested in proving that one way or the other. And Cary Grant's sexuality is his own private business. For me, he's such a fascinating kind of metrosexual character that both men and women find attractive. And he may well have been bisexual, but he never, he always refuted being a homosexual and he definitely had relationships with women. So let's not do bi erasure here. So if he, if he did like men, he also liked women. So he was bisexual. But Mark Glancy, who, if you're going to read a biography of him, uh, particularly if you're interested in the Bristol connection, Mark Glancy's biography, which is called Cary Grant, The Making of a Hollywood Legend, is one of the best and most accurate and well, most well-researched biographies that's come out. And he's a gay writer himself, and he didn't find any evidence that Cary Grant, um, he says that he didn't find any evidence that he was had a relationship with Randall Scott and that he was homosexual. So I don't care because we're all, our sexuality is fluid and gender is fluid and, you know, it's all up for grabs. And to me, it just makes him even more attractive. You know, whoever he slept with, I don't care. Um, but some people are very, very invested with him having a relationship with Randall Scott and having, uh, being a homosexual. And they are very invested, particularly in these photos that got made. And I really want to remember when those photos 
were made and circulated and if they relate to when this film came out because this film definitely plays on there's a queer aesthetic to this film with these images of of Randolph Scott Adam living in Cary Grant's head mm. and and in the narrative, he's worried that Randolph Scott has had relations with his wife, you know, when they were both on Desert Island. But what you're seeing is Cary Grant fantasizing about a beautifully bronzed Adonis swinging on a, on gym bars in his imagination mm. using a, a really superimposition. So for me, that's really exciting because it enables us to kind of like unpack quite a lot of stuff about representation and queer identity and you know whether we want to speculate about whether they had a relationship they definitely were very good friends and I, I just find it fascinating and I'm you know I don't want to call it either way because it's much more exciting if we don't know it sort of adds to that legend doesn't it of these 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 Hollywood icons especially in the 30s and 40s when the PR machine was really going for it um it just sort of adds to the to the legend I think like Mark Glancy put it very well because these images of Randall Scott and him together to circulate as kind of proof of their relationship. But they were publicity photos that were taken by the studio. They were not taken for that purpose. They weren't intimate romantic shots that were personal candid shots of them. They were constructed shots. Mm. So, I mean, it's really, really complicated. But to me, like, I just think, you know, it's in the same way that Archie Leach and Cary Grant, the frisson between them adds to his um, complexity as a star. Not knowing about his sexuality adds to the complexity of his stardom. It makes him even more attractive. In the narrative of the film, you know, the character, Nick, his character, Nick, is like, he's decided he doesn't want to be with his new wife. And then, like, you know, he wants to be get back with Irene Dunn, but also, like, this new character is sort of thrown into the mix. And I, I wonder if maybe him, you know, in his head is sort of thinking, well, maybe maybe I could consider this other route uh, as well. You know, like maybe that's the character himself, you know, questioning. I think that reading is completely valid. And yeah, I, I think that's, it's, it's so exciting. And it's quite rare to have these visual tricks in a film. Mm. Like they're very simple in camera tricks. So it's literally superimposition where we're seeing uh, the Randolph Scott character. So I'm moving my hands and you can't see me because it's a podcast, mm -hmm. but you're seeing him swim, swinging in the background. So Cary Grant's at a desk with a big bookshelf and that's the backdrop on which the Randolph Scott character is superimposed. It's a really simple in-camera trick, but it's really, really effective. And and I, I just really love that. I think maybe for contemporary viewers, so I was just looking at the photo shoot you mentioned. So that was published in 1937 and the film is 1940. So I do wonder as well by casting Randolph Scott, if they're sort of just sort of playing on this known friendship. I think they are, absolutely. I didn't know who he was when I first watched the film, and then I had to sort of read about it afterwards. But if, as he comes in so late in the film as well, to make a big splash, if it's, you know, Cary Grant's off-screen uh, roommate uh, that everybody knows from, from you know, the, the magazine, you're like, oh, wow, okay, they're throwing something here. Like, that's really interesting casting. There's different kinds of masculinity, and they're playing with that. So there's Cary Grant's character who, yeah, he's a lawyer. So Nick Arden is a lawyer, which is quite a, um, you know, it's a respectable trade kind of thing. Um, and then you've got this example of physical prowess, which is the Adam character. So she tries to wheel out this elderly sales assistant, pretend that he's Adam. So it's playing on ideas of masculinity and, um, and then you get these different versions of masculinity. But yeah, the Randolph Scott character is living in Cary Grant's head because on paper, because he's worried that he's been on an island with his wife. But at the same time, he, could he be admiring that physical prowess? Could he be lusting after it himself? Cary Grant 
very good looking man but we don't really see him i don't think in this film in his swimming trunks we don't sort of see you know him being a sort of a physical person um so uh, you know yeah is he sort of admiring this guy is he is he insecure you know is he an aspirational figure uh, for him i think we only really see nick in his suit or his dressing gown yeah well exactly as you say so so the dressing gown feminizes him because it's a leopard skin matching leopard skin dressing gown to his new wife and so that's also playing on our our memory of seeing Cary Grant in various dressing gowns in other contexts. So, for example, in Bringing Up Baby, there's the scene where he's wearing a fluffy dressing gown because he's had to, had to get his clothes washed. Um, and he jumps up and, and goes, um, you know, I've just gone gay all of a sudden. So that's a really fam- famous scene. So I think this film's playing on that the memory of that dressing gown. He's being put into a very feminine garment and potentially represented as a more of a feat version of, of masculinity. So yeah, there's lots of really interesting queer re- readings. And I think that the whole... Shakespearean gender swapping because when when Irene Dunn arrives she's dressed as a sailor with her hair and a cap and then that comes down and then she's pretending to be a nanny at one point so these mistaken identity and pretending to be other people and pretending to be what you're not not, and playing with gender and identity I think um, runs throughout it so it's it's a lot of fun and to, to look at it from that point of view. Who are you? Well, well, you see, well, uh, he he was on the island with her. He's not important to this case. I'll decide what's important to the case. They were on an island together for seven years? Yes, Your Honor. Not alone? Yes. Is that in the brief? No, Your Honor, no. Oh, that should be in the brief. That's the most interesting part of the case. I would like to get out of here before I explode. I want to get home myself. I'd like to tell my wife about this case. (laughs) She thinks all my cases are dull. What's special about Cary Grant and Irene Dunn? I think they got on with each other really well in real life. And I think that shows on screen. I think they've got a very similar physical sense of humour. I think Irene Dunn is an amazing physical actress. For example, in The Awful Truth, she's imitating one of Cary Grant's girlfriends and doing this funny dance where the air goes up her skirt and she's pretending to be Southern. Like, she's just funny. And she puts on a really silly Southern accent and then pretends to be from the South. She's just really funny and they um they really sparkle together on screen and in this like the whole time they it's clear that they love each other but there's all these tensions and kind of going on but that kind of like enjoyment of each other and their humor in the characters but also off screen i think really comes through i think grant's pretty good for that you know like he's often paired really well on screen uh you know with his co-leads I think he had some really great relationship with many of his co-leads. I think Ingrid Bergman was another star that he he was, had amazing chemistry with on screen, but they really got on with each other and that really comes across. He loved Grace Kelly and I think also Deborah Carr, um, he, who's a number of films with her. He didn't have a good time with Joan Fontaine in Suspicion, um, and I think she w- really didn't like him and felt really insecure that she- he was trying to steal her scenes. But I think that could have been Hitchcock trying to create animosity between them because of the plot and trying to keep us guessing of of like, do they, don't they? Is he, is he a murderer? Um, but yeah, so I think generally the reports back from his um, leading ladies that he was wonderful to work with and he was very, very generous um, and professional on set. And I think Irene Dunn, you know, and he, that really, really shows um, across these performances. There's a lot of, you know, sort of bouncing off each other, sometimes quite literally, you know, Cary Grant's so good at that sort of physical side, even if he is, you know, buttoned up in his suit. 
Well, of course, he trained as an acrobat, and so he had complete control of his body. And um, it, it's just really interesting, like when people write about his acting style. So James Larrymore has wrote about acting on screen, and there's a really brilliant chapter on North by Northwest in there. But there's also a chapter on Holiday, which is a Catherine Hepburn film in which he does acrobatics. He had a physical grace, and that goes with his suave sophistication. But he could also be really silly and fall over and um, do amazing things with his body, like leaning. So although Randolph Scott's represented as this kind of physical athlete, we know that Cary Grant had all of that. Um, and although he's not playing that kind of hyper-masculinity character, you know, that lean that he does in the lift, you know, that that is, he's almost nearly horizontal by the end of it. Um, so there's a lot of physical prowess that goes into it, but he just makes it look so easy. So it's not a big hyper-masculine showing off. It's just kind of like, you know, you can just do it naturally. We like to ask our guest contributors how they'd like to present the film to an audience. And it is weird talking to a festival programmer because you are literally presenting this film uh, to, uh, to an audience. Say the Carrie Comes Home Film Festival partners up with the 90 Minutes Solace Film Fest and we ask you to do a, a one-off screening uh, for My Favourite Wife. We got a blank check so we could show this film anywhere, we can invite anyone we want. What's your dream screening of My Favourite Wife? Oh my god, well if money was no object I would like to do an outdoor screening in a swimming pool and have acrobats um, diving into the pool off ring bars um, scantily clad people so I'd make it a bit of a kind of like expanded cinema experience. So you'd be sitting outside eating your breakfast, maybe, uh, which is what they're doing. Um, and then that so for that scene, there would actually be acrobats swinging around and jumping into the pool and splashing about. And you could also theme it with kind of jungle theme, desert island stuff going on. Yeah. So I think that's what I do. I do a big expanded outdoor and we'd have to probably be in a hot place where it doesn't rain. No, I think I think we could do we could take this, you know, find a sunny locale um, and and sort of recreate that uh, 1930s style sort of country club. Yeah, oh, well, basically, the Bristol is a centre for circus. So we do, there's a really lovely church called Circa Media that's a circus training school. It's in a church. Um, so we could do it there, but then we wouldn't have the swimming pool element. So I don't know about that, but we'd definitely get some sort of local circus um, people involved and really celebrate. In fact, we are in 20, we're a biannual festival and in 2024, the theme's going to be Acrobat Circus because, and I'm going to get all the performances where he does pratfalls and flips and things like that. Oh, that'd be incredible. So yeah, this actually might happen. Nice. Okay. I, I, like, the, I like the sound of that. If you uh, if you had to come up with a menu uh, for this film, um, I don't know if, if sort of Cary Grant had anything on record, you know, like a favourite food or drink maybe we could share with the audience. There is a recipe for mushroom canapes, which we recreated in the 2014 festival. And there's a couple of other celebrity cookbooks where he does like a chicken dish or something like that. So we could do those, but... Um, I think we could stick to our Cary Grant cocktails. So there is a cocktail called Cary Grant and there's obviously a Gibson, which he drinks in North by Northwest. So I'm not sure what he drinks in The Favourite Wife. I wasn't paying enough attention. But yeah, so I think you could definitely have the poolside cocktails, maybe something a bit tropical in there to go with the Desert Island theme. Although Cary Grant was very glamorous and you think of him drinking pink champagne, he did like warm beer and his favourite chocolate bar 
was a picnic. Oh, interesting. But we could eat picnics and have Cary Grant cocktails and just mix up the two, the Archie side and the Cary side. I think that'd be brilliant. If you could invite a guest to sort of come and talk about this film, are, are people sort of out there sort of talking about his work? What's the what's the sort of state of play there? Jennifer Grant, his daughter, she's been involved with some of the TCM screenings and things like that. So she does do stuff um, with him. I would really love to meet Barbara, his wife and his daughter and have their blessing. And I really hope that if they know about us, that they think that we're doing it in good taste and that um, they appreciate what we're doing. Um, So Barbara Grant was very supportive of raising the statue and she came and unveiled it. But then she said that was kind of the last thing she's really going to be doing in association with Bristol. She kind of done that. So I've never reached out to her. Um, not not because I don't want to, I just don't want to annoy her. Um, but it'd be really lovely to hear from her and also his daughter Jennifer a little bit about what it was like um, growing up with him and stuff like that. Um, so that would be really lovely. I'd, I'd really like Leo McCary to come back to life. I'd really like to get his perspective on working with Cary Grant because he obviously worked with him a number of times and he obviously was trying to build on the success of The Awful Truth, but then he didn't get to direct this film. So I'd quite like to know what he would have done and how he would have directed it differently and whether he thinks it was a success. And, you know, apparently when it was finished, they didn't like it and um, they reshot the ending with, they brought back the judge at the beginning who was trying to get them to get married who was a really funny character so they brought him back at the end and apparently used him in a kind of expositional way to draw attention to all the flaws in the plot <laughs> um, but kind of explain them away through through him kind of talking about them openly in the film <laughs> but yeah so I'd like to know what Liam McCary would have done had he not been run over and how he would have directed because this could have been like the next awful truth it, and it, it's not as good as the awful truth it, and it has a lot to recommend it and i thoroughly recommend watching it and i really enjoy it but it isn't the awful truth but had leo mccary actually directed it maybe it would have been oh that's that is true that is true i that, that that would be interesting sort of a, a what would you have done uh sort of situation if if, if things were different um because it must have been i mean it must be gutting to a get run over uh, but also be to set up a film with two of your you know, amazing actors you've had great success with and then not actually be able to sort of follow through and and direct the thing but also i think garson canaan you know he did a brilliant job given that leo mccary was on his deathbed and they didn't know whether he was going to survive to and they were being forced to carry on with production and everybody was really concerned you know that must have been really difficult circumstances under which to work um, and I think he has pulled brilliant performances out of Cary Grant and Irene Dunn, and it and it it is a really delightful film, um, but it's not directed by Leo McCary, so it would have been really interesting to see what he'd have done with it. Okay, so we can make that happen. We'll bring Leo McCary back um, to have a chat. Uh, we've actually covered Duck Soup on the pod as well, so maybe he'd like to hear that two of his films, um, uh, you know, have been that he's been involved in have been covered so far on our on our ninety minutes or less journey. Well, there we go. That's a that's a wrap. Uh, thank you so much for talking to us, Charlotte. I know as you were recording, you're knee deep in prep for this year's edition of Carrie Comes Home. So thank you uh, for your time. And and uh, and yeah, where should people go if they want to find out more about the festival? The website is carriecomeshome.co.uk. Carrie's got one R. And then it's all at Carrie Comes Home on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. 
Uh, what are you most looking forward to screening this year? I, I'm looking forward to all of it. I'm, one of the things I'm most looking forward to is screening None But The Lonely Heart, which is a film that um, is very rarely screened. And it's the film that he was one of his Oscar nominations. The other one was for Penny Serenade, neither of which he won. But it's the film that it was most important to him. And it's the film in which he plays Ernie Mott, who's a working class ne'er-do-well, who comes back um, and it's about his relationship with his mother, re- reflects his own relationship with his real mother. Um, and it's the kind of character that he would have become if he hadn't left Bristol. Um, so the theme of the festival this year is talking about class and class identity and its representation on screen. And this is going to be introduced by Ertan Kochbach, and he is an Iranian filmmaker and curator. He works with the Cinema Ritrovato Festival in Bologna. I'm sure they show a lot of films under 90 minutes and nobody ever talks about this film. And if they do, they say, oh, it's not very good because he's not being Cary Grant, you know. But actually, it's a fascinating film that was um, representing quite left-wing views in the McCarthy era. And the director, Clifford Odets, um, did get blacklisted. And also, Ershan's Iranian, and apparently Cary Grant's massive in Iran. He was friends with the, the royal family over there. All of his films are dubbed into Farsi, and he's like a really popular figure over there. So I didn't know that. So I'm just fascinated to hear about that as well. You're just sort of dropping lots of recommendations that I now want to go off and watch. Thank you so much, Charlotte. I've just so enjoyed doing this. And thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify Or, if you've got a mo, share an episode with your friends. Every recommendation helps. You can contact us on our website, 90minfilmfest.com, and on Twitter and Instagram, at 90minfilmfest. The podcast is produced by me, Sam Clements, and Louise Owen. It's edited by Louise Owen, with sound mixing and additional editing by Luke Smith. Our music is by Martin Ostwick, and our artwork is by Sam Gilby. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. We're a proud member of the Stripped Media Network.